Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Our guest today on Looking Forward is going to discuss an ancient philosophy of life that has gained renewed interest today. He's Massimo Piliucci, who's currently the Katie Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. Now, among Professor Piliucci's research interests are the philosophy of science, the relationship between science and philosophy, and the practical philosophy of Stoicism. In fact, it is the practical philosophy of Stoicism that we will be discussing today. Hi, Massimo. Welcome to Looking Forward. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're welcome. Massimo, can you please tell our audience just a little bit about yourself? You've got an interesting background. You could probably talk for hours about it. Oh, let's up not. Let's up not. Uh, <laughs> um, well, my, my background is a bit mixed. Uh, I, I, my academic career initially was in biology, in evolutionary biology to be specific. And I did that for a number of years, uh, going through the usual uh, steps of an academic career. And, uh, and then at some point, you know, midlife crisis hit and I wanted to do something different. So I went back to school and got a PhD in philosophy. And then uh, a few years later, I switched fields and uh, became a philosopher of science. And then a few years after that, something funny happened on the way to the forum, so to speak. <laughs> um, and I turned on to, to stoicism. And now this is most of, most of what I do these days. Isn't that neat? You know, one of the really neat things about listening to you say that, Massimo, is how it can be very important for us throughout our lives, when necessary, to reinvent ourselves. And you've obviously changed direction. Now, it's not a straight line, right? It isn't linear. No, it's not a straight line. It was not planned uh, ahead. And of course, people uh, typically will tell you that that's crazy. Why, why would you do that? And, um, but it worked out pretty well for me. I, I would say so. One other quick thing I'd like you to mention to the audience who may be less familiar with you is you were born in Italy, and were you born in Rome or near Rome? Or tell us a little Actually, bit about you that. Actually, I, I was born in, uh, in Liberia, Monrovia, in West, in West oh, Africa. I didn't know that. Because okay. my father was, uh, was working there overseeing construction, uh, road construction for a, for a British company. But my family moved back to Italy when I was very little, so I grew up in Rome, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah that's a part of you I didn't know about there. Thank <laughs> you for sharing it. Now, for those listeners who have never heard of Stoicism, Massimo, or perhaps they re don't remember what it's about, maybe they studied it in college or something, can you please provide us with a brief explanation of what this philosophy is, including its origins, which I think have something to do with Rome in a way? That's right. Well, Stoicism is an ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. I think of it often as the Western equivalent of Buddhism. Uh, in part because the, their, their way of approaching things, their ethics, their, their suggestions for how to live a life, it's actually very similar, uh, much more similar than people might, might actually first sight look at. In terms of its history, it, it uh, started out around 300 BCE in Athens. Um, it was established by a guy named Zeno of Citium, who was a merchant. And there is an interesting story right there because Zeno was a Phoenician merchant and on his way to Athens, he got into a shipwreck and he lost everything and barely escaped with his life. And he made it to Athens, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. And of course, what do you do uh, if you just have been shipwrecked and you lost everything? You walk into a bookstore. Um, that's, that's what Zeno did. <laughs> of course. Naturally. Plus, right. <laughs> not, it wasn't Barnes and Noble, probably, but yeah. Probably not. <laughs> okay. What happened was that, so in the bookstore, he, he was listening to the, uh, the guy who owned the book, the, the, the book uh, shop, and uh, that guy was, was actually reciting parts of Xenophon's Memorabilia, which is a book about Socrates. It's, about the, it's essentially a biography of Socrates. And so Zeno got really interested, and he asked the bookseller, he's like, where can I get me a person like this, meaning a philosopher? And uh, the bookseller said, well, look, uh, right out there, there's one passing, passing by just now because 
Athens was that kind of time, a place at the time where philosophers were just walking by uh, you know, and you could point to them. And uh, so Zeno followed this guy, the guy in question turned out to be Quaetus of Thebes, who was a cynic philosopher. The word cynic didn't mean at the time what it means today in modern English. Uh, it was actually a dominant philosophy of life at the time. And so Zeno started uh, studying first with Quaetus and then with a number of other philosophers. And uh, several years later, he felt confident enough to start teaching uh, in his own right. And he started doing that in a place in the middle of the marketplace, right, out, right outside of the Agora, which, is, which was the major marketplace in Athens, in a painted porch, uh, which was called, which was open to the public and was called the Stoa Poikile. Stoa Poikile just means painted porch. Oh, wow. And that's why the philosophy is called, you know, Stoicism, because it was initially uh, taught under the Stoa. But you're right, there is also something about Rome here. What happened is that the early Stoics were in, uh, usually situated in Athens. That's where the school was, was established and, and kept thriving. But around the year 86 BCE, the Roman general Sulla defeated the Athenians in battle uh, because the, the Athenians had made the wrong decision of aligning themselves against the Romans. And, um, and then he marched into the city and just burned everything down which was very unusual, actually, at the time. The Romans were usually not that destructive. Uh, what that did, however, was to cause a diaspora of philosophers. Uh, you know, a bunch of people just left town at that point, and went, they went to some of the major other cities in the Mediterranean, uh, Rhodes in Greece, Alexandria of Egypt, and especially Rome. And that's how Stoicism moved from Athens to Rome. Uh, mm. All the major Stoics that we actually know of uh, in subsequent centuries are from, from Rome. And the, these are mostly the big three, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Okay, so that's how it all got started. Why did you personally become attracted to this? You were a guy, maybe you studied it when you were a kid, I don't know, or college, but you were in the sciences. And then here you, you evolve in your own right, and you get interested in the philosophy of Stoicism. What attracted you to it, Massimo? Well, so I was going through a little bit of a mid midlife crisis. You know, nothing, nothing terrible. The kinds of things that happen to a lot of people. You lose one parent, for instance, divorce. Uh, you know, a couple of things like that. And um, so I was looking for some kind of framework, a, a way to sort of deal with whatever was happening to my life at the time. And I grew up, even though I grew up in, in Italy and therefore I grew up Catholic, uh, I left the church when I was a teenager. Mm. And after that, I always considered myself a secular humanist. Problem is that when then push came to shove, so to speak, secular humanism was really not very helpful because even though I agree with the general ideas of secular humanists, you know, that it's all about um, uh, things like the, the declaration of rights, human rights, and, you know, things like that. Yes, but in practice, when I'm facing a divorce and the death of my father, that's actually not particularly helpful. Mm -mm. Uh, it wasn't really giving me any particular, you know, guidance on how to do things. Now, by that time, I had studied philosophy, and so I figured, well, if there is an answer, it's going to come from somewhere from philosophy. And so I systematically explored a number of possible uh, options. I studied out actually with Buddhism. Uh, I looked into Buddhism, but Buddhism, the problem with it from my perspective is that the language was alien to me. Uh, the metaphysics was very alien to me. And all this talk about karma and reincarnation and that sort of stuff. It's like, no, I can't, I can't go there. I'm a secular person. I don't believe in life after death or anything like that. So that's not going not gonna, not, not gonna to work. There's a lot of good things about Buddhism, but it just didn't speak to me. So I realized pretty quickly that the answer was going to be in the general proximity of what philosophers call virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is a type of approach to living one's life that was developed mostly by the ancient Greeks and Romans. Aristotle is the obvious example. But also, actually, in the Eastern traditions, Confucianism is a type of, uh, of virtue ethics, for instance. And the, the thing about virtue ethics is that it's focused on your own character, on, on trying to improve your, yourself as a, as a person, morally, ethically. So when you start studying virtue ethics, then the first stop is Aristotle. And I looked at Aristotle in quite a bit of detail. The problem with Aristotle is that, first of all, he wasn't really that interested in practical stuff. You know, the, the theory is very interesting, but the, the, the practice, like, hmm, I don't know. Again, he's not, I'm not getting guidance here. And also that Aristotelianism as a philosophy is a bit aristocratic. I mean, the guy says basically that, yeah, you should work on your character and, you know, try to, to be a, as virtuous a person as possible and all that sort of stuff. But 
unless you have um, a significant amount of education, a little bit of wealth, uh, you know, uh, health and, and good looks, even you're screwed. You're not going <laughs> to live a good life. And like say, Oh, come on. Nah, that can't be right. That's yeah. not, that's not, that's not a good beginning. So after that, I went to Epicureanism. Epicureanism is also a type of virtual ethics. And, uh, you know, the Epicureans have this, this bad reputation of being the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of philosophy. But in fact, there, was, there, there were nothing like that at all. Uh, essentially, Epicurus said that the main goal in life is to live a life that is uh, without pain, both physical and especially mental pain. And a, a life focused on small pleasures, a life focused on friendship, cultivating friendship and things like that. And that sounded good. However, the problem is that because the major goal is to live a life without pain, then Epicurus decidedly advises his, his students not to get into social and political involvement because social, social, social political stuff, it's painful. And we all know he was right. It is painful. Problem is, I can't imagine living a life without social and political involvement. I don't think it's a particularly meaningful way to live as a human being. So that was out of the window as well. Wow. So that's where I was. And then at some point, I, um, of all places on my Twitter feed, I see this thing that says, um, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I said, the hell is Stoic Week? <laughs> and, and, and why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? I mean, I, what I had in mind of, about the Stoics was the, the typical misconceptions, which is the Stoicism is about living your life with a stiff upper lip and that, that you know, suppressing emotions and all, which turned out not to be true, as, it, uh, as a matter of fact. But at the time, that's what I was thinking. So it's like, that's weird. Why would anybody want to do that? But I wasn't cu- curious because um, I remember, of course, that Stoicism was also a type of virtual ethics. And then I started getting more and more curious because I said, oh, wait a minute, Stoicism, that's Marcus Aurelius. Right. I, I actually read the meditations when I was in college, although wow. I really didn't make that connection at the time. And Stoicism, well, that's also um, Seneca. And Seneca, is I had translated from Latin when I was in high school. And again, I did not make the connection. I actually didn't even connect Marcus Aurelius with Seneca, even though they were talking about the same philosophy. And then there was this guy. His name is Epictetus. Yeah. And uh, the, the very first thing that I read when I approached Stoicism uh, uh, fresh was uh, the Discourses of Epictetus. And, and the Discourses of Epictetus begins with a, a number of interesting situations. At one point, uh, it says, um, so let's see, it looks like today is not the day I'm going to die. Uh, so instead, let's focus on lunch because I'm hungry and let's go out for lunch. It's like, <laughs> wait, who is this guy? What, this is... Uh, interesting way of philosophizing is very is, is um, language is very plain spoken is very clear is forceful. He has an interesting sense of humor, sometimes bordering of uh, bordering on, on sarcasm. So I, say, I like this guy. How come I never heard of this guy before? And so I've, after that, I started you know, devouring everything I could find about Epictetus. And then I went went on and, and made my way back to both the meditations and all of Seneca and all the so-called minor Stoics. Uh, that uh, we have, of, which we, uh, of whom we have available material. And here we are, several years later, we're still talking about it. Yeah, and I might add, I think your first book is really your conversation with Epictetus, is it not? Yeah, in fact, all three of my books really have a lot to do with Epictetus. And the first one is How to Be a Stoic, yeah. which was uh, es- essentially my journey into Stoicism. Uh, I figured that other people might be uh, interested in sort of doing something similar, something along the same lines. And it is conceived as a series of imaginary conversations with Epictetus where uh, we're walking down the Roman Forum and uh, near the Colosseum and things like that. And I actually went to Rome to, I moved to Rome for a few months to actually, to write that book. So I was actually really walking down the the Forum uh, during those days. And, And it was interesting because I used Epictetus' own voice, so, so each chapter starts with an actual excerpt from the Discourses or the Enchiridion, the other the second book by Epictetus, and then I go on and sort of answer and elaborate on these things. So, so it was a really interesting exercise. The second book, uh, A Handbook for New Stoics, which I co-wrote with Greg uh, Lopez, my friend Greg Lopez, is actually completely different. It's very practical. It's like it's uh, 52 exercises that people can sample or, or choose from in order to, to try out sort of the Stoic life. The book, however, is organized, the, the exercises are organized according to three uh, disciplines, to three sort of areas of application. And those three disciplines come straight of, uh, out of Epictetus. And they are the discipline of desire, which is meant to realign our priorities, basically. So Epictetus' idea was that 
most of our priorities in life are actually misguided. They're, they're wrong. When we go after things like fame and fortune and money and things like that, we just don't understand what's going on and what's really important in life. So we need to realign our priorities. And the second discipline is the so-called discipline of action, which deals with how to interact with other people. Because after all, most of our life is about interacting with other people, relating to other people. And then the third discipline, uh, which is called the discipline of ascent, is about how to improve our judgment. Because Epictetus thought that arriving at better and better judgments in life is, is basically the most important thing you can do. Because from your judgment depends everything else. It depends what you decide to do, not to do, uh, how you decide you spend your time, your time, and who decide to associate with and so on and so forth. So the second book is also very much influenced by Epictetus. The current one, the one that just came out, it's called The Field Guide to a Happy Life. And that actually is my personal homage to Epictetus because the second book by Epictetus that I mentioned, the Enchiridion, by the way, I should say Epictetus actually didn't write anything in his life. The two books that we have by him, the Discourses, which is in four volumes, and the very short Enchiridion, uh, which translates as the manual, uh, they were written by uh, Herian of Nicomedia, who was uh, a prominent student of Epictetus, and he was present in person at Epictetus' lectures. And so he basically just wrote down his, uh, his notes, uh, which kind of makes me, you know, makes me a little nervous because I, I can imagine if I knew that the, the only thing that would survive of me uh, in terms of writings were notes from my students, I would be kind of worried. <laughs> That's right. Who knows? Who knows if it, something was lost right. in the translation? Right. But it is what it is. You know, that's what we have. Um, and we, also, we actually have independent evidence that, that Arian was a really thoughtful person. He went on to have a, a brilliant career, first as a statement, and then eventually as a historian and philosopher. He wrote um, an interesting biography of Alexander the Great, for instance, among other things. So, you know, we, we're relying on him. That's our we're only We're relying choice. on him, and hopefully he was a good interpreter. Exactly. And now, speaking I, of interpretation, I, so that's the thing. The third book is really a rewriting uh, of the Enchiridion. The Enchiridion, as I said, is a short book. It's, it's comprised of 53 short sections, each one of which addresses a different topic. And basically what I did was not a new translation because there are many very good modern translations of Epictetus. Uh, it's a complete rewrite, meaning that I use the same topics and the same structure as Epictetus, but I try to update Stoicism and Stoic thought in general to the 21st century because after all, uh, you know, a couple of millennia passed. Uh, and, and things have changed and, you know, society has changed. Uh, we, we know a few things more in both in terms of philosophy and science. And so that's mo both my homage to Epictetus uh, because he's been so influential and, and determinant in my life, but also a general attempt to bring stories into the 21st century so that uh, the wisdom of people like Epictetus, Seneca, and the others uh, is more accessible and more practical for people in the 21st century. Yes. And uh, if I can throw in a little plug, everybody, I have the first two books. I don't have the third one, but the first two are great. Massimo writes so well. Some people write very abstractly, but uh, Massimo does not. And that may be one of the reasons why you were attracted to Stoicism is it's, it's practical in its orientation. And to some extent, well, it allows for change. There is a little bit of fluidity in terms of how it operates. But that leads me to something that's very important. You sort of alluded to it when you were talking about uh, the first book, actually the second book, the handbook. And that is, what are just a few, Massimo, for those of us who are less familiar with Stoicism, of the tenets, the core tenets of Stoicism? And when you're talking about that, yes, you do have to talk about almost the opposite, which is there are some myths about Stoicism, right. which really turn people off if they don't know about it. Oh, you're a Stoic, so you don't care about anything, do you? Right. Exactly. So if you which, could address some of the, really the core tenets, which may involve the myths too. Yes, there are three basic tenets uh, or three basic notions in Stoicism that kind of essentially put together the framework for the whole philosophy. The first one is, as the Stoics, the ancient Stoics put it, that we should live according to nature. Now, let me be clear about what that means. It doesn't mean that we should be stripping naked and running into the forest and hugging trees, although there is absolutely nothing with that if you want to do it, but that's not Stoics. It also doesn't mean, uh, more importantly, that the Stoics were saying that whatever comes natural to human beings is also good, because they, they thought, in fact, that certain things that do come natural to us, like anger, for instance, or violence, are in fact wrong. So they were not just 
saying whatever is natural is good. Uh, that would be a logical fallacy, actually. It's called the appeal to nature. So, and they were pretty good logicians, so they wouldn't have made that kind of mistake. Okay. So what did they mean then when they said we should live according to nature? Well, they said we should take in serious consideration the nature of the cosmos at large, the nature of the universe, as well as human nature. And so in modern terms, what that means is that we should live by uh, following, understanding and following how the world works and not engage in wishful thinking. You know, if I wanted to fly and I started jumping out of the window, that would be a bad idea. That would be not living according to nature because as it turns out, I cannot fly uh, on, my, on, my, on my own powers. You know, gravity gets into the way. And uh, so living according to nature at a cosmic level just means pay attention to how the world actually works and forget about wishful thinking about you would like it to work. It, you have to take the facts into consideration, essentially, in order to live a good life. Otherwise, you're, you're likely to mislive your life. That has all sorts of applications if, if, if you think about it. For instance, we live, as you know, right now in the middle of a pandemic where almost half of the population in the United States is refusing to live according to nature. It's refusing to actually take seriously the fact that we are we're in a pandemic that works in a certain way and that there are certain things that you need to do in order to get out of this uh, situation. So that's, that's a very important component. Good, of, good you know, point. Good yeah, point. Of living according to nature. The second aspect is living according to human nature. And the Stoics thought that the two things that really distinguish human beings from every other living organism on earth and from every other animal are that, one, number one, we are capable of reason. That doesn't mean we reason well all the time. In fact, we don't. Uh, but we are capable. If we, if we really work on it, we're actually capable of, of living you know, in, in reason. And the second one is that we're highly social animals, that we only thrive in a social group in social relations when we're embedded in you know into, into a society so from that they said that a good human life therefore is one in which you apply reason to improve social living so the cos the, the, the stoics were cosmopolitan uh, they thought that all of human humanity is a brotherhood and sisterhood of people and that the whole point of a human of a good human life is to use your abilities, particularly your ability to reason, in order to make other people's lives better. Right? So it's a very other regarding uh, philosophy from that perspective. So that's the first uh, pillar, so to speak, of uh, Stoic philosophy, the, this notion that we should be living according to nature. The second pillar is this, the so-called four virtues, four cardinal virtues. So a virtue, uh, the term virtue sounds weird today because we, we, after 2,000 years of Christianity, you start thinking about you know, chastity and purity and things like that. Nothing like that was, was the stories we were talking about. In fact, the word virtue comes from the Greek arete, which means excellence. It essentially means that you should try to behave in the best way possible for a human being. Okay? You should be an excellent human being. And there were four types of excellences that they were particularly focused on. They're called practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is really good for you and what is really bad for you so that you can, you, get, you can set your priorities straight, okay? You pursue what is good and you, you avoid what is bad. The second one, courage, is not just physical courage, but, phys but courage to do the right thing. So it's moral courage. Justice, of course, is what tells you what the right thing is uh, in the first place. So, and it turns out that for the Stoics, the right thing is to treat other people as human beings, as, as um, you know, worthy of dignity, as human beings, fairly, as you would like to be treated yourself. And then the fourth one is temperance, which means doing things in the right measure, neither too much nor too little. So let me give you an example. So the, the notion is that you're supposed to be using these four virtues as a kind of a moral compass. Everything you do in life, from the small things to the, to the big things, you should ask yourself, how is it what I'm about to do? Does it compare with the four virtues? Does it pass the test of the four virtues? So let's say uh, a practical situation. Imagine that I'm at work and my boss is harassing a coworker. The question is, should I intervene? So practical wisdom tells me, yes, you should. And the reason for that is because intervening is the right thing to do. Therefore, it improves your character. Not intervening is a cowardly thing to do. Therefore, you're undermining your own character. So it is good for me to intervene. Before even we're talking about my coworker, it's good for me because if I don't, I undermine my own character, my own integrity. So yes, the answer to the first question, the first question is yes, according to practical wisdom. Uh, what about courage? What well, it takes courage because it's my boss. So I could face retaliation, even possibly lose my job as a result of it. So it does take your courage. So yes. Third, what about justice? Well, it is just meaning that 
I'm treating my coworker in the way in which I would like to be treating myself. If the boss were actually harassing me, I would like somebody to come to my defense. So yes. And then finally, temperance. Well, how should I respond to the situation, right? Well, one way that I could do it is to kind of just merge something under my breath so that my boss doesn't hear, hear me. Well, that's not enough. So that's low on the scale of temperance. At the opposite extreme, I could just jump on my boss and punch him on the nose. But that's too much of a reaction. That's just the situation doesn't call for that. So that's being intemperate in the opposite uh, direction. So temperance tells me, no, what you should do is to firmly and calmly make your comment, answer what's, uh, what's going on, answer, address the situation. So that's how we're supposed to be using the second pillar of Stoic philosophy, which is the, the four virtues. The third and last one is what is sometimes referred to as the dichotomy of control. And the dichotomy of control, uh, Epictetus puts it beautifully right at the beginning of the Enchiridion. He says, uh, some things are up to you and other things are not up to you. Uh, and then he lists, you know, here's the things that are up to you. Here's the things that are not up to you. And then the rest of your life, you should try to focus on the first one and try to simply develop an attitude of equanimity toward the latter ones. In other words, focus on what actually you control and take the rest as it comes, because after all, you don't control it. So what else are you going to do? Throw a tantrum? That's not going to be helpful. Now, that notion of the economy of control, which is very practical, it applies to pretty much everything we do. It's actually often people say, well, I've, I've heard that somewhere else. And they're right, because it actually is a notion that comes up in a number of other cultures. It, it emerges, for instance, in medieval Judaism, in 8th century Buddhism, and it is familiar also to, also to Christians. Many people have heard of the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer was written by a, a 20th century American theologian, early 20th century. And it is, as, as you probably know, used at the beginning of meetings of, in 12-step organizations such as Alcoholic Anonymous, right? And the prayer, although I never remember the exact wording, basically asks God to give us the, the wisdom to tell the difference between what we can do and what we cannot do, the courage to do what we can, and the serenity to accept what we cannot. Well, that's essentially the dichotomy of control. That's essentially what Epictetus says, although Epictetus said it 18 centuries ago, essentially. So those are the three main pillars of Stoic philosophy as far as I can articulate it. Thank you for explaining that. I will tell you personally that the thing that really drew me to Stoicism was the dichotomy of control. It's so simple, it's so practical, and how many times in our lives, and I can speak personally in my own, have there been times when I was getting myself all bent out of shape about something that I had absolutely no control over in terms of its outcome? Exactly. I, think that is, I think that is just so wonderful. Thank you, you for know, explaining A lot that. of people do um, object to it on the basis that it's like, well, wait a minute. It's not that simple, is it? There aren't just things that are under our control and things that are not under our control. There are a bunch of things that I can influence, even though I don't completely control. But, the, but of course, the pictures knew that. It's not like, you know, this, this is not exactly a novel discovery. It's not rocket science. But what Epictetus would say is like, yes, but the things that you influence are themselves made of two components, one that you control, one you don't control. For instance, let's say that uh, uh, tomorrow morning I have to go for, for a job interview. Right? I could say, well, I, I can influence the outcome, uh, even though I don't ultimately control it. Yes, but think about it more carefully. What does that mean exactly? Well, there are certain things that I completely control about the interview. How I prepare myself, how I even dress uh, if I'm, you know, if I can stay focused on, on the interview, if I put together, you know, the resume that I put together before the interview, all that, all of that is entirely under my control. Other people can try to influence it. You know, they can give me advice, but ultimately the buck stops with me, so to speak. It's I'm the one making those decisions. On the other hand, everything else is not up to me. The outcome of the interview certainly depends on the part, on the bits that are under my control, but it also depends on things that are entirely outside of my control, like who is the interviewer? Uh, who is my competition, whether the interviewer had a bad morning and so he's in a you know, foul mood or, or, or not, uh, you know, all of those kind of things, uh, you know, if I come across as um, likable or unlikable, all of those things are not, not at all up to me. And so the end result, the outcome is a combination of these two components. As it turns out, Epictetus was right, I control a subset of those. And therefore, that is where my efforts and, and my uh, concentration should go. Yes. Thank you for, for adding that on. I know there has been this 
terminology, the trichotomy of tr control, but let's just right. stick with dichotomy. I think that's simple and uh, I think yeah. it's very practical. We're going to get a little bit later on to, again, the notion that Stoicism is sort of internally focused and who cares about the rest of the world, and you talked about that. For right now, I want to talk more about trends. Looking forward is in part about looking at trends and where we may be going. So for right now, let's talk about where we've been and where we're, where we're at now. So it seems to me, and I could be wrong, that in the last decade or so, maybe it's just a decade, there have been a plethora of books, of writings, interviews, websites, you name it, including your own stuff, that right. speaks to stoicism. Am I right in thinking that this is, I don't know if it's mainstream, but that it's moving in that direction more recently? If I'm correct, then you know, let me know and let the audience know. If I'm wrong, that's fine too. And is this something that's a U.S. phenomenon? We tend to think, you know, we're the trendsetters, but maybe not. Maybe this is worldwide. Maybe it started someplace else. Please comment on that, Massimo. So yeah, I, you're right. In the last 10 to 15 years, Stoicism has definitely uh, gone mainstream. I mean, it's certainly not as popular as, like, let's say, Buddhism or anything like that. Um, but it has gone mainstream, meaning that there are lots of popular books about it. There are lots of podcasts. There are lots of um, interviews and, and uh, stories in you know, major magazines and newspapers. Uh, it is a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, uh, How to Be a Stoic, uh, my first book has been now translated in 13 different languages. So it's, it's all over the place. Wonderful. Uh, yes, thank you. But it's, that's, it was surprising. So it's not just English. It's been translated, of course, in most European languages, including you know, Italian, uh, Portuguese, you know, Spain, Spanish, etc., German and Dutch, but also in Eastern languages, such as there's, there's two Chinese editions, there is a Taiwanese edition, there is a Korean so and Japanese. So that means to me that it is a worldwide phenomenon. Of course, it has different impact in different countries and different cultures for sure, uh, but it is worldwide. As far as the inspiration goes, well, once in a while, it's not the United States that is the inspiration. Um, <laughs> it's England, as it turns out. It was England. Yes, okay. the original, um, you know, modern stoicism movement, which is now the name of an organization that sort of tries to help people with resources, providing them with resources to pursue. Uh, the study and practice of Stoic philosophy. It actually started out in London uh, about 15 years ago or so. Uh, those are the people that first put together annual events such as the Stoicon Conference, which is about to happen again in October, uh, this time, of course, online, given the COVID pandemic. Uh, these are the people that organized the Stoic Week, which was the thing that I actually, that allowed me to discover Stoicism in the first place. Um, and so, so and, and it's a, it was a, originally a small group of people with an interesting and varied background. Some of them were academics who were interested, of course, in, Sto in, in ancient philosophy in the first place, but also had this unusual thing for academics. They were interested in the practical applications of ancient, ancient philosophy. Um, but they were also joined by people who were interested in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, uh, and similar kinds of approaches because cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy, and, all, and, and a number of others approaches to modern psychotherapy have actually been directly influenced by stoicism when they came out originally in the early, in the early 60s. So it was an interesting group of people, mostly based in, uh, in London and surroundings. And so it's, it, was a British, it was a British phenomenon. Now, you could also argue that right before that, uh, like about 10 years before that, there was another person that, uh, another scholar who became instrumental in the revival of Stoicism, and that is Pierre Hadot, who was a French scholar. And he wrote three books on uh, ancient philosophy, ancient practical philosophy. One of them is called The Inner Citadel, and it's devoted to the philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. It's a beautiful analysis of Marcus Aurelius' meditations. And more importantly, actually, of Epictetus' philosophy, because Marcus Aurelius was directly influenced and massively influenced by Epictetus. So now, Hadot's books were not as popular as some of the modern books on Stoicism are, but they became, they actually inspired a number of people, including the, the ones that I, the people that I mentioned uh, from the UK, to pursue this, for us, very strange notion, but for the ancients, very obvious notion that philosophy actually is practical. It's, it better make a difference in your life. Otherwise, it's not particularly useful. You know, I'm so glad you said that piece because I was going to probably mention this to you subsequently, but just the words practical and philosophy 
almost seems like oxymoronic. I mean, <laughs> I went to college and had a class in philosophy. I remember having conversations at lunchtime with my professor in his office and all that. But it was, it was so, a lot of it was just so theoretical. And I think about like Kant and, yep. and, and, you know, some of the, I forget Wittgenstein, some of these other people, it's like, well, what am I going to do with this? I barely yep. could. The challenge was just mental and understanding it and processing it. If I encourage people and I do to get a little bit more familiar with this philosophy, that's to me what calls to it is it's, it's very practical. It's, it's very well grounded. Yeah. But if you think about it, um, the, the kind of philosophy you're talking about, which is, you know, modern academic philosophy, very specialized, very difficult from a logical perspective, I mean, challenging in, for sure, but as you pointed out, not particularly practical. That's actually an anomaly. It's an anomaly, not only in terms of the, of the world in general. I mean, think about almost all of the other major philosophies we know of, Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, and things like that. Those are very practical philosophies. They're not, they're not into, you know, they're not the kind of stuff that Kant or Wittgenstein were doing. But even, from, even within the Western tradition, this is anomalous. This is something that actually happened with, beginning precisely with Kant. Kant was the, the modern, he's sometimes referred to as the father of modern philosophy. Yes, but he's the father of a particular way of thinking about modern philosophy. This very analytical, very abstract type of thinking. But before Kant, um, you know, pretty much a lot of people were doing practical philosophy, beginning with Socrates, right? Socrates was obviously as practical as you get. I mean, he, he literally spent these days in the streets of Athens challenging people about, you know, living a better life. And throughout the, the antiquity, uh, you know, think of people like Seneca or Cicero uh, in Rome. Throughout the Middle Ages, uh, you know, even when, we talk, when we're talking about Christian theologians, people like St. Augustine or uh, Thomas Aquinas, they were very practical. I mean, they were interested from their perspective, of course. They were interested in saving people's souls, right? There's nothing more practical than that, because if you believe in that sort of stuff, then you, you know, you, you're risking spending the rest of eternity in a place that it's not, not particular to your liking. So that's very practical. And all the way up to David Hume, who I would argue was the, in you know, the 18th century Scottish philosopher, it was the last or one of the last of the practical philosophers. David Hume famously said, um, you know, he had an interesting sense of humor. He said that sometimes he actually got into a little bit too much theoretical stuff at home and he kind of felt bad about it, felt sick about it. And so what he would do at that point to cure himself, he would get his coat, get out of the door, join some of his friends for, uh, for a beer and a, and, a, and a game of backgammon. And then after that, everything was fine. So even up to that point, philosophy was very practical. It's really with Kant and the modern you know, academic institutionalization of philosophy that we lose that practical aspect. Now, to some extent, it's kind of inevitable. I mean, you could say the same story for science. A lot of science, it's not practical at all. Yes, a small part of science has very practical applications. You know, we're, we're talking to each other in the middle of a pandemic through a wonderful, you know, electronic medium that is made possible by science. But m trust me, I've been a scientist for decades. Um, you know, 95% or more of what scientists do have absolutely nothing to do with practical stuff. It's about as abstract and as abstruse as, uh, you know, what philosophers do. That's typical of, academ of academia in general. So to some extent, it's kind of an inevitable aspect of the, the professionalization of academia. The problem is, I think, that what you do find is, uh, if you walk into a modern philosophy department, with some exceptions, you actually find disdain for the notion that philosophy could be practical, right? So if you want to learn practical philosophy, if you want to learn how to live philosophically, the last thing you want to do is to walk into a philosophy department uh, because they will look at either you, at you either puzzled and say, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Um, or they will say, oh no, we don't do that stuff. Um, that's too bad. I, I, they it is do too that. bad. And I think you're pointing out the notion that philosophy is not practical is an anomaly of sorts is, is news to me because I... I guess I'm too grounded in, in Kant, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah. what is this stuff going to do for me? It's, I'm getting a headache just trying to process what he was saying with those words. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. That's very helpful. Something I also wanted you to delve into here is something you alluded to earlier, and it's very important. If you and I were doing this, uh, having this conversation a year ago, we would have never talked about this. But as you know, right now we're in the midst of COVID-19, this pandemic, haven't seen one in about 100 years of this magnitude. And I'm wondering what effect Massimo has this pandemic had in the interest 
or practice of Stoicism, if any? Is it unrelated? If we hadn't had the pandemic, would this move toward the mainstream have happened anyway? Or has it possibly even accelerated the interest? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So uh, the, the move to our mainstream had already been well on its way. And so I think it would have happened anyway. But yes, I think it, the, the pandemic has accelerated things. Mm. One, of the, one of the reasons I can tell is simply by the sheer number of requests that I get for interviews and podcasts and things like that, right? In normal times, I do get a, a good number throughout the year. Uh, since the pandemic started, that number has, you know, multiplied significantly. Um, so, and for obvious reasons, stoicism itself, if we again go back to the historical context to understand how, how things evolved, stoicism itself is, of course, an, an Hellenistic philosophy. The Hellenistic period uh, goes roughly from the, uh, the, death, uh, the death of Alexander the Great and the collapse of the Macedonian Empire to the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, where Octavian defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, thus establishing the Roman Empire. That period was a period of great turmoil with major political upheavals, uh, major societal changes, where people felt that things got out of control, that they had no, no way to deal with the situation, but very stressful times. So it's no surprise that not just Stoicism, but a second wave of Aristotelianism, Epicureanism, Cynicism, Cyrenaism, a lot of other skepticism, a lot of other philosophies either evolved during that period or, or were re, uh, you know, reinvented during that period because people feel that when, when things are out of control, they need some kind of anchor. They need some kind of framework. And in fact, this, this has happened not just in the Western evolution, uh, you know, during the history of the Western world. Something very similar was happening in India a couple of hundred years before the Hellenistic period. And that, sure enough, gave rise to Buddhism. About the same time as the rise of Buddhism, something like that, you know, major social turmoil and political change was happening in parts of China. And sure enough, that gave origin to Confucianism. In fact, wow. it gave origin to the, what the Chinese referred to as the, the period of the thousand schools. So it's not surprising. So I think that part of the reason why Stoicism is coming back in the early 20, 21st century, in fact, late 20th century, early 21st century, because this thing has actually been going on, if we count from the moment Hado started publishing his, his books, then we're talking back into the 80s, mm. 1980s. So, uh, well, why? Well, think about it. Uh, the, the, the late 20th century, early 21st century is a period where, um, setting aside the pandemic, which is bad enough, as you know, we're still facing the, the very po real possibility of a climate collapse. I mean, just look at the images that are coming out of California and Oregon these days with uh, you know, literally the sky on fire. We are still, I mean, people don't talk much about it, but we're still facing the constant threat of nuclear Armageddon because we have a number of nations in the world that have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the planet several times over. And those are just the major things, right? <laughs> and then there are, you know, fairly major political changes. You know, the, the initially we, we saw in the 80s a, a potential move toward a more democ democratic uh, planet with the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union. And then immediately after that, on the other hand, we veered again towards sort of authoritarianism, like look at the situation in Russia, in some of the Eastern European countries. So all of those changes are bound and, and all those threats are bound to make people feel insecure, feel like they need some kind of guidance, some kind of framework. And Stoicism, as well as other philosophies of life like Buddhism, are tailor-made for these kind of situations. Yeah, I guess along those lines, probably what we should really harp on is let's take a look at the practice of Stoicism, what it teaches us. And during this pandemic, when we have a time of seeming abnormalcy, how can Stoicism help somebody stay grounded, not get flustered, not get anxious? So many people, as you know, Massimo, are getting right. anxious. I just did a show recently about suicide. We're yep. trying to promote the prevention thereof. How can Stoicism help? Let's get really practical. How can you help the listeners understand how this philosophy could help us get through this very turbulent time? The first thing I want to say is that, of course, Stoicism or other philosophies of life is not a silver bullet. Nobody should think that, okay, I'm gonna pick up one of Massimo's books, I'm gonna read it, and my life is gonna be fine. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> it requires effort, right? It, um, in fact, the Stoics themselves said that it's like going to the doctor's office or to the gym. You don't walk into a gym and immediately become an Olympic champion. It's like, like that's not gonna happen, okay? 
what happened, in fact, most of us are never going to become Olympic champions. However, what's going to happen is that if you go to the gym, you listen to the, to the instructor, you, you practice on a day-to-day basis, your aerobic capacity gets better, your muscle tone gets better, you live a healthier life, right? And that's more than good enough, um, but right. it does require, you know, without going to the Olympics, but, but it does require effort. The same exact thing goes for a philosophy of life like stoicism. Yes, by all means, pick up one of my books or Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, all of the above, but don't believe that this is going to be a, you know, a silver bullet. Like, oh, how come it's not working? I thought my anxiety was going to go magically away. There is no magic. Uh, as the Stoics themselves keep reminding us, we should live according to nature, meaning understanding human nature. And human nature is such that your anxiety aren't going to go disappear overnight just because you read a book. That said, there is a practice. I mean, right, so, so Stoic philosophy is like, I would say 10% theory, 90% is practice. That's why I wrote the, the second book, is, which is essentially only exercises, basically exercises. The one, the new one, I have a uh, field guide to happy life is also very practical. It's got like these little 53 precepts that one uh, is supposed to go back over and over uh, until you internalize them, until you, they become sort of a second nature. Now, let me tell you how that works. We talked earlier about the three pillars, right? The living according to nature, the four virtues, and the dichotomy of control. Does that stuff make a difference once you internalize things? Of course it does. Let me, get, let me t- just tell you a very brief and uh, real anecdote that happened a few weeks ago to my wife and I. So we've been in, in our apartment here in Brooklyn for the last five months, almost six months at this point, and uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, with just occasional walks outside, but that's about it. And we're lucky enough that, you know, we, 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 do, we have jobs that are actually fairly secure. They, we can do it remotely and all that sort of stuff. Nevertheless, the stress of, of being in a small apartment of like 600 square feet, uh, you know, with another person, no matter how good that other person is, for months at a time, it's like, yeah, okay. So any kind of major, minor setback uh, may be, you know, a tipping point. It may turn into something like, oh my gosh, this is a major thing. So things happened, of course, over the last six months. Like one of them was... At some point, we realized that our refrigerator was not working anymore. And it's like, oh, that's a problem because now, um, you know, up to now, we've been going, you know, grocery shopping, which, as you know, is a, is a hazard because yes. it exposes you uh, possibly to the virus. So we've been going shopping only once in a few, every few days and been getting a bunch of stuff, putting in the freezer and the refrigerator and be fine. But without a refrigerator, you can't do that. You have to do, go out every day, um, you know. And so what, what are you going to do? So... Normally, this might have been a source of stress and worry and friction, possibly even, and so on like that. But we looked at each other. My, my wife you know, tends to practice stoicism as well. And we looked at each other and said, okay, what's under our control? <laughs> First question. What, what, what is it that we can actually do about, about this stuff? It's, yeah. it's useless to just throw a tantrum or, or say, oh, my gosh, this thing is happening. That's not helpful. In fact, it actually makes things worse. First thing, what's down in our control? Well, first of all, we're, we're renting here at the moment. So let's call the landlady and see what she can do about it. And it turns out that the building did not allow at the time delivery of new furniture so there, or appliances. So there was no way to get a re- replacement refrigerator. However, the landlady was able to talk the management of the building into letting in a small fridge, like you know the ones that you use in dorms and in college, right? Well, that's better than nothing. Uh, it's not what we had before, but it still allows us to put some stuff away. They had even a little freezer and that sort of stuff. Second thing that we can do, well, we can shift for a few days at least or a few weeks until the situation improves. We can shift our diet and get a lot more dry and canned foods rather than fresh stuff. Now, we prefer the fresh things, but, you know, this is the situation. What are you going to do? Um, so, you know, I guess we're going to eat more pasta and more beans, uh, <laughs> less, uh, tomatoes. Pasta for pasta for yeah, exactly. Pasta for <laughs> It's perfect. That's exactly what we did. So we, the first thing was to, to stop and think about making, literally making a list of what is it we can do with this situation, then implement the list. And guess what? The whole thing went over smoothly. Not, not a problem. We were not worried. We didn't fight. We didn't get into any sort of stressful situation. A few weeks later, it turns out that New York got to the point in terms of new, number of new cases where the building felt uh, comfortable enough to allow uh, you know, delivery of appliances. And so now we have a beautiful, perfectly functioning new refrigerator and we're back to normal life. Now, this is just one small example, of course, but that's the way it works. I mean, life is made of small examples. It's, it's made of, you know, these little things here and there that you have to deal with. And so the notion is, one way to think about it is this, that, that the stoic approach is that if a setback 
occurs in your life, the natural thing that comes to, to us is to think of it as a setback, to say, oh my gosh, this is happening, right? Rational emotive behavioral therapists call this catastrophizing, right? So, so making everything into a catastrophe. It's like, I can't believe this is happening. Well, what do you mean you can't believe it? It is happening. It's, it's real. How is it that you cannot believe it? And also, do you really think that this kind of stuff never happened before? I mean, you just mentioned that the last pandemic was a century ago, right? Millions of people died. Things happen. This is not the first time that we're going through something like this. And in fact, we're lucky in a sense because we have better technology, we have better medicine, we have much better able to deal with the situation than people a century ago. So instead of thinking immediately of, of the catastrophe aspect, of the setback aspect, of the, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening, think of it as a challenge. It's like, ah, the universe is sending me a challenge to see how I'm doing. Uh, now, I don't actually literally believe that the universe is sending you a challenge. Right. You know, the universe doesn't care uh, one way or the other. You know, it's, it's not either against you or, 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 or in your favor. But it's helpful to rephrase things. This is actually known in modern psychology as the framing effect. And it does make a huge difference that the classic example of the framing effect is um, an experiment in which people are told, you know, they go to a doctor and the doctor says, um, so your analyses are back and it turns out you have a 10% chance of dying or a 90% chance of surviving. Right. It's exactly the same factual information, okay? 90% survival, 10% uh, you know, mortality is exactly the same thing. But people react very differently if you put it in terms of mortality versus survival. That's the framing effect. And so you can use the framing effect to help yourself. And that's a lot of what Stoic philosophy is about. It's just rephrase things. That's why Epictetus was saying, you know, it's not things that affect you. It's your opinions about things. You're not in charge of the things themselves. I'm not in charge of whether a pandemic happens or not, but I am in charge about, of how I think about the pandemic. Is it something unpleasant? Of course. But is it something that is a catastrophe? Well, I can choose to think of it as a challenge. It's like, okay, this is an interesting uh, situation here. Let me see what I can do about it. Let me, so you immediately refocus your attention on actionable things. And that makes you feel better because you feel in control. I want to jump in. That's fantastic. And I have a few things to quickly comment on there, and then we'll go to uh, wrap up here. Sure. Number one is I grew up in a household where, unfortunately, I had a parent, happened to be my mother, who I loved very dearly, miss her very much. But she would get caught up in that terrible thing that happened, and it would almost cripple her. And that's yeah. kind of what I learned for many years until I met my then wife, who had an engineering way of looking at things and said, let's solve the problem, and then we'll figure out why it happened, right? In Massimo's book, his book on how to be a Stoic, he has a wonderful example, and we won't get into this here, let everybody get your book, right? Sounds but good. a wonderful example, I mean, I really thought it was terrific because it really struck a chord with me. How you're on a train or the subway in Italy, and somebody pickpockets your wallet. Yep. And you're on the way to like a party someplace. And for a lot of people, including myself, maybe not so much now, but in the past, that's the end of the party. There's no yep. party. I right. am completely focused on, I am obsessed with the fact that I lost my wallet. Yep. And you were able to move on and have a good time at that party. And you solved the problem. That to me just, it spoke to me and it said it all. So that's number one. The <laughs> second thing is about living in close quarters. I also had a guest recently on who is an expert on relationships, couples relationships. And she has predicted, not surprisingly and unfortunately, that when this pandemic is over, we're going to see a lot more couples divorcing because yeah. they're living in those tight quarters where you and your wife are living and a refrigerator could do it. I mean, it, it could be the end of the relationship. Yep. So it's, it's not a small example. It's not an abstract example. It's very real what you were talking about. Now, let's move along to not only what our listeners can do to get in touch with you, but I would also ask that you mention to them about the Stoicon and the Stoic groups I happen to be a part of one myself that are around the country and the world. You've got this new book that's just come out. Can you please tell us how people might be able to learn more about that book, your other books? You have a blog. You have uh, other resources you provide. There is a way to reach you. And then there is the Stoicon. And then there are these groups. Sounds so good. I gave you a lot there. Can you please 
let us know. Sure. Um, so the, the new book is called A Field Guide to a Happy Life. It's available uh, you know, at any online or in-person retailer. People can find pretty much everything that uh, I write, produce in terms of podcasts, videos, and all that sort of stuff, lectures, etc. at massimopilucci.com. So just my name, my first name, last name, one word.com. And Can you you'll find it. Spell your last name, Massimo. Please spell yes, your last It's uh, M A S S I M O P as in Peter, I G L I U C C I. So you go there, massimoproducer.com, and you'll find links uh, to every, pretty much everything that I write, do, produce, et cetera. And so if you're curious about stoicism, uh, but also other aspects of you know, things like philosophy of science, my, my research on pseudoscience and things like that, that's where you want to go. Or you can follow me on Twitter at M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. Now, as far as uh, Stoigon is concerned, this year uh, it is on, seven, on Saturday, October 17th, the whole day. And uh, you can go to uh, modernstoicism.com. And from there, you find the link to how to get tickets. Uh, it's actually a free event. Uh, we ask for donations to support the organization, but it's a free event. You don't have to, to donate anything. You just need tickets because you, you, you will need, uh, we need a headcount and you'll need a Zoom uh, link in order to participate to the conference. But it's, it looks, it's looking like a really interesting conference with a number of speakers, including myself, but some of the major people in modern stoicism, Donald Robertson, for instance, the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and one of the movers and shakers uh, of modern stoicism. Bill Irvine, the author of The Stoic Challenge, which another book that just came out this year. So it's going to be really interesting to, to do that. And Stoic Week, I think, is the, either the week before or the week after. And you'll find information about that as well at modernstoicism.com. Modernstoicism.com. And then if our listeners want to find out more about the chapters, we got a chapter started in Southern Chester County and uh, Northern Delaware area, and it was through Greg Lopez. And so there's a, there's a group, right, that sort yes. of oversees these chapters. That's right. It's called the Stoic Fellowship, and you can find them at stoicfellowship.com, one word. Uh, Stoic Fellowship. And uh, yes, that's exactly what they do. They, they provide information and materials for people to start local store, essentially. In person, outside of, pande- of, of the pandemic, online, of course, for now. But uh, one of the nice things that they have, they actually have an interactive map of the world where you can look it up your location and see if there already is a store that you can join. And if there isn't, then you can put your name there. And if other people are interested, they will contact you and you can, you can start your own local, local, local chapter. There's also a number of local events that are referred to as Stoicon X events. So they're smaller than Stoicon and they're more local. And there are a number of Stoicon X events over the next several weeks. And uh, again, you find a full list at modernstoicism.com. There are also a number of Facebook places where you can go, uh, Facebook groups. The big one is called just Stoicism, and it's organized by Don Robertson again, who is incredibly active. And that group has like something like 82,000 people. So it's a huge, huge uh, Sorry, you, you said 80 to 100,000? Yes. Wow. Sorry. That's a lot of people. Now, if you want a more intimate experience, on the other hand, in a more private group, also on Facebook, you can look up How to Be a Stoic, which is the title of my book, and you'll find a group that you will have to apply for a mission. That's a much smaller group. It's like a couple of thousand people at the moment, I think. Wow. And, you know, we have much more intimate discussions. If you have a problem, if you have an issue, you can bring it up and, uh, and either I or somebody else will try to help out. That's terrific. I just want to end by really focusing on two quick things here. One is that the books that you write, that Massimo writes, are very practical people, okay? This is not like highfalutin stuff up in the clouds. It's the, the books are very practical. I don't have the third one. It sounds like it's going to be as good, if not better, than the first two. So again, philosophy can be very practical. As Massimo said, it's usually very practical until we hit Kant. Okay. That's right. For a little while, there was a bump. He was a bump in the road. Okay. That's right. The second thing is we really need to tarnish that belief, that mistaken belief that Stoics are only concerned about themselves. They show no emotion. They don't want to make the world a better place. Totally wrong. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Those are misconceptions. And 
like all misconceptions, they're kind of based in a little bit of a tiny grain of truth. So the notion that a stoic is somebody who goes through life in, with a stiff upper lip comes out of the fact that for stoics, endurance is in fact a good thing. I mean, you know, as I said before, if there is nothing you can do about a situation, then your choices are either you throw a tantrum or you endure it. Throwing a tantrum is not particularly effective. Um, and in fact, it makes it worse. So you might as well endure it. But endurance is only one aspect of Stoic philosophy. It's not a major one either. And then the notion that Stoics try to suppress emotions is also misguided. Uh, the real, first of all, because it's actually impossible. Well, you know, any psychologist will tell you that you just cannot suppress your emotions. They're there. Yeah. Uh, you have to deal with your emotions. And in fact, what, that's what Stoics, uh, Stoics try to do. They try to handle their emotions and they try to negotiate their emotional responses, trying to move away as much as possible from what we consider unhealthy responses, such as strong emotions like fear, anger, hatred, things like that, and moving toward embracing, mindfully embracing uh, what we consider as positive emotions, such as joy, love, you know, a sense of, of justice, a sense of how things should be, you know, that, that sort of stuff. So those are both misconceptions, but like every misconception, there's a little tiny grain of, of truth there. And that's the, the, the grain of truth is the part that's actually interesting. Yes. Massimo, it's been a real joy to have you on. Speaking of joy, <laughs> and um, I wish you the best of success with this third book. And I think our listeners are going to really enjoy the information and it will, I think, help a lot of people get through the very tough time we are, especially in right now. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.